All right, and we are rolling once again. I am Lee Grant. This is Kevin Pendergrass, and we are ever exploring faith and pursuing grace. That is our MO to explore the aspects, the varying aspects of the Christian faith as we ever grow in our appreciation for the grace of God that he has gifted to us. Joining us once again to continue our discussion from the previous episode is Brother Brandon Johnson, one of our favorite people and one of our favorite guests to have on the program. We will be continuing our discussion of the Holy Spirit. Brandon, thanks for being back with us, brother. Hey, guys, thanks for asking me. I'm excited to continue our discussion on the Holy Spirit. Yeah, buddy. So whenever we talked last time, we opened up and just kind of had a loose, free-flowing conversation about our experiences and perspectives and the per, the approach and perspective that we took on the Holy Spirit, who the Holy Spirit is, what he does, some of the misunderstandings that are out there. We talked about the importance of mystery. We talked about how there are certain things that have made us afraid to really appreciate the Spirit and his work. And we sort of ended the previous episode by discussing the reality of the Holy Spirit's presence and the Holy Spirit's work within the lives of Christians. And Kevin's mind was completely blown, and it was a rare moment where we were both left speechless with uh, Luke 11 and 13. Kevin, it blew his mind that he ever missed that. And you had mentioned Titus 3 and verses 4 through 6, and that kind of blew my mind, and I was surprised that I had ever missed that one. And we were getting into that idea of the Holy Spirit is very real. He is very much someone who God sent to us. And Kevin even you know, brought out the trajectory of Scripture, how we have God the Father who is afar off and who is hard to approach, we see in the Old Testament. And then we have God manifest in the flesh through Jesus and Jesus coming and abiding with mankind and dying for the sins of mankind, but then the Holy Spirit being sent to indwell within us, which I thought was a, a really interesting point in seeing the trajectory of God growing ever closer with his creation, then ultimately sending the Spirit to dwell within us, that divine third member entity within the Godhead. And that's really where we left off in the previous episode. So is there anything else that we want to add to recap that? Anything else you guys want to share before we dive into what the Spirit's work looks like and what that's revealed to be in Scripture? I don't. I'm good for uh, just diving into into the Spirit's work. How about you, KP? Yeah, let's go ahead and get it going. All right, very cool. So whenever we discussed the Holy Spirit's presence and the Holy Spirit's work, there were some passages that you had mentioned in the last episode that, that we talked about. First John 3 and 24, Titus 3, and then Luke 11. Are there any other passages you want to reference before we get into the specifics of what the Holy Spirit's work is? There are several that I could. Um, they basically just kind of teach the same thing that the Spirit has given to us, that He dwells us, that He was sent to us. Um, for sake of time, I think I'll probably just skip over those since we kind of kind of hit that, and hopefully we've we've established that at this point. And we might maybe a good transition passage would be Acts two verse thirty eight, which gets us into uh, the Spirit as a gift and uh, what that means for believers and his his role as a gift. So uh, Acts two thirty eight might be just as good a spot as any to to kick it off. Um, as you guys know, and probably a lot of our listeners know, this is what's referred to as the day of Pentecost. This is where Peter preaches what we call the first gospel sermon. And then you have uh, the people listening. They, they say, well, what do we do? We've heard this. We've been convicted. What do we do? Here's Peter's response, Acts 2, verse 38. 
Peter replied, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. So I think this is kind of a good jump-off point to recognize again this this idea that the Spirit is literally with believers. In fact, uh, Scripture paints the picture that at the point of faith and baptism, the Spirit is given to you. Um, it's 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 kind of like God saying, "All right, you have committed yourself to me. I'm now moving in." You know, we we struggle a lot of times with the Spirit because, frankly, the word "Spirit" and then the old King James word "Holy Ghost." Gives us this weird ooh feeling um, that we sometimes don't know what to do with, and so we uh, we struggle with that. The spirit is simply God. Okay, we we recognize as believers that God uh, is in three forms: the Father, Son, and the Spirit. So we have Acts two thirty eight that just tells us God is moving in at the point of faith when you just choose to follow Jesus. God moves into you. Well, one of the things that that I wonder about, because whenever Acts 2.38 says that, it says, repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, there is so much debate over what that gift actually is. And the perspective that so many in the word-only camp hold to and the perspective that I held to for so long is that that gift of the Holy Spirit is a synecdoche that represents the gifts of the Holy Spirit. So in speaking of the Holy Spirit, that's, you know, a sort of metonymy in a way, but it's also synecdoche that that references the gifts of the Spirit that would come later, speaking in tongues, the gift of prophecy, etc. That gifts of the Holy Spirit um, could be rendered, or I should say, is practically rendered by the way people interpret that whenever they read it as gift from the Holy Spirit. And another way that I've heard that rendered is the idea that the gift of the Holy Spirit is eternal life, that that you're granted eternal life upon your obedience to the gospel. Whenever you're added to the family of God through baptism at that point, you receive that gift, which is eternal life. Or that was only to them. They would receive the gifts of the Holy Spirit. But the idea that you're that the gift of the Holy Spirit is the Holy Spirit himself, it does make some people uncomfortable sometimes. It does. And it's interesting how we uh, include myself in this because I've been guilty, how we try to explain away just plain passages of scripture. You know, the gift of the Holy Spirit actually means gift from the Holy Spirit. And what's interesting, there's no translation I'm aware of that ever translates it that way. It's always a gift of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the gift. Um, something I think that kind of goes along with that is, uh, I th- in fact, Kevin actually, he and I discussed this years ago. I think it might have been when we were on the other side of the fence um, I think Acts chapter 19 reaffirms this. Uh, Acts 19 is the story where, where Paul goes and he finds some disciples, um, but it's a place he's never been. His first question to these people as believers, as disciples, he finds out they're disciples. His first question, it wasn't, hey, were you baptized? It wasn't, hey, where's your preacher? His first question as evidence of trying to figure out where they are as believers in Jesus was, did you receive the Spirit when you believed? Let that sink in for a minute. That's, Paul here is equating the idea of being a follower of Jesus as, hey, you're going to know you're a follower of Jesus because you received the Spirit at the point that you put faith in Christ. This isn't a, this isn't a situation in which uh, I don't think Paul's talking about miraculous gifts. I think Paul is, is clearly referring to the Spirit being given to all believers, that, that universal gift to all believers in Jesus 
And Paul identifies that as a clear point or a clear way to identify a disciple of Christ. Yeah, and and I remember us having that conversation because at that point, I believed we had the Holy Spirit. I was just under the impression the Holy Spirit wasn't doing anything, but I did believe <laughs> that we had the Holy Spirit. And, and that was one of the reasons why, because I, in fact, even in preaching school, I used to get into debates. Uh, huh, imagine that, me getting into a debate. <laughs> we used to, uh, get, I used to get in debates with folks because they would say, well, Acts 238 is not actually talking about the Holy, you know, God giving us the Holy Spirit. Uh, and I said, well, it's got to be. And they said, well, no, that's only talking about, as Lee, you were pointing out, miraculous gifts that only certain people received. And I said, well, if, if this is only talking about some sort of miraculous gifts, I said, then everybody in Acts 2 who was baptized, some 3,000 people, all were endowed with miraculous gifts. And then also, as you pointed out, uh, as we just, you know, like I said, we discussed probably over a decade ago, Acts 19 that that had nothing to do in and of itself with miracles. It was, do you have the Holy Spirit? And if, if that was the litmus test to know, okay, you know, do you believe? Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? Uh, it, it wasn't, well, some people receive the Holy Spirit and some people don't. Some people receive gifts and some people don't. It was just assumed in that context that if you were a follower and believer in Jesus Christ, you had the Holy Spirit. Um, another passage that, always was very convincing to me was Ephesians chapter one, uh, because here Paul is talking to the whole church in Ephesus. And I don't know of anyone who would say that every single Christian here in Ephesians had miraculous ability, but in Ephesians chapter one, verse 13, uh, here Paul actually says, and if you don't mind, I'll just go ahead and read this. Uh, in fact, I'll, I'll kind of back up here in verse 11. It says, In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of his will, who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, well, who's he writing to? He's writing to all the Christians here in Ephesus. So he said, In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed, were sealed with the promise Holy Spirit, the, or the promised Holy Spirit. So that clearly ties back to Acts chapter 2, verse 38. And I, I, I used to hear different people try to explain this away as saying that there are multiple promises of the Holy Spirit and all sorts of special pleading just to try to get around this. But yeah, I, I think the text is pretty clear. Whatever else you say about the Holy Spirit, it seems to be... A, a clear doctrine throughout the New Testament that all Christians have the Holy Spirit. They've been given the Holy Spirit as a gift. Yeah, agreed. And honestly, uh, I, th I think that's clear. One of the things from Acts 19 that jumps out to me is when the, the, when the believers there, the disciples said, no, we don't even know what the Holy Spirit is. What do they do from there, Kevin? They, they, they go and get rebaptized, which... Again, I, I, don't, I don't want to read too much into things and tell people, hey, if you didn't have a perfect understanding of the Holy Spirit, your baptism's not valid. That's not my point. But it was a serious enough issue that Paul said, hey, you know, you don't have your faith and your understanding correct enough. We need to kind of redo this whole baptism thing. Your, your baptism under John was just to point you towards faith in Jesus. Uh, Paul seems to clearly link Jesus and Holy Spirit together, and that understanding of those two things coming together at a point of faith in the believer, um, 
And so this idea that we have separated the Holy Spirit out of our Christianity would certainly be, uh, that would be foreign to Paul, because Paul sure didn't see it that way. And as you mentioned in Ephesians chapter 1, same thing. Paul mentions it again in Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 30, talking again to the whole church. Uh, he talks about this idea, I'm going to move on from gift to the idea of seal. Ephesians 4 and verse 30, and Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God with whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Paul uses that twice in Ephesians, the passage that Kevin referenced in Ephesians 1 verse 13, and then again in chapter 4 and verse 30. And this idea of seal as a gift. This is not something that the Holy Spirit is trying to change in you. This is God giving you the Spirit, and this is part of that gifting process, something the Spirit's doing for you, is He's sealing us. Uh, now, seal throughout Scripture is, is kind of a common theme. Um, in fact, if you go to, to Romans chapter 4 and, and back to the book of Genesis as well, uh, Romans 4 verse 11 tells us that Abraham had a seal. Abraham's seal was circumcision. Hey guys, I'm going to be honest with you. I'm really glad our seal is the Holy Spirit and not circumcision. How about y'all? <laughs> yeah, it's hard to walk after that. You don't walk for about two years if you get it done at birth. <laughs> so, uh, But the idea that uh, of a seal is nothing new to Scripture. It's the idea that God marks his people so that they know and everyone around them knows they belong to him. I know this sounds a little bit crude, but... Uh, any, any Jew or any Israelite could say, hey, I have proof I'm a follower of God. And they could prove it. They could show it. But we as believers have a seal. And God says, I am giving you a little bit of me to mark you as belonging to me. It's, uh, you might even think about like from the book of Esther, King Ahasuerus, when he sealed the law with his, with his ring, it marks it as, as an authoritative document, as having come from the king. Well, we have been marked by the Holy Spirit as belonging to God. But more than even that, I think in, in addition to the seal concept, Paul adds, uh, adds a point in Ephesians 1 in the following verse, Ephesians 1 and verse 14. You have verse 13 where he says, we've been sealed with the Spirit. And there's verse 14, he builds on that, which I think is super cool. He says, talking about the Spirit, he says, who, the Spirit, is a deposit guaranteeing our inheritance until the day, until the redemption of those who are God's possession to the praise of his glory. So you have this idea that we're, we've been sealed by the Spirit. We've been stamped by God through the Holy Spirit as we belong to him. But in addition to that, the Spirit is our deposit. Now, another way to word that would be and some translations even word it this way, he is our earnest. And we don't use that word very much except in one real subject in, in American culture, and that is when we're buying a house. We'll use the, we'll use the phrase or the word earnest. And we, we, we mean earnest money. It's that deposit. It's what the money that we put down before the contract is completed, before the purchase is completed, to show that we're serious. I had a realtor tell me one time, your offer is only as strong as your earnest money is big. That makes sense. You know, if you put a lot of earnest money down, it means you're serious. Well, Scripture is telling us that God is so serious about making us his children that he's going to give us a down payment or a deposit or an earnest gift of what is to come. Now, here's the coolest thing about this. A deposit or earnest payment 
is always a portion of the same thing that you're going to receive at the conclusion of the contract. Right? If you, if you put $1,000 yeah. down on a house you're going to buy, at the time you complete the contract at the purchase, you're going to give more dollars. You're going to give more money. So what is Paul getting at when he says the Holy Spirit is our earnest or our deposit of what is to come? Well, we're going to talk more about the idea of the things that the Spirit does to us. But one of those things is sanctification. It's the changing process. It's the process of making us look like Jesus. One of the greatest things I believe about heaven, what is to come, is that we will be completely completed, if I might put it that way. That we will be all of our sin, all of our weakness, all of those desires that are contrary to God's will will be completely removed. The struggle that we go through on a daily basis of trying to to seek the fruit of the Spirit and trying not to fulfill the lust of the flesh, we're doing that in this life because we've been given the Spirit to try to accomplish that. But that is just a taste. That strength is just a taste of what's coming when we get to fully have complete fellowship with God in which we are completely changed and those desires that are against God, those sins... Those, those evil thoughts, the, the temptations that are there are completely done away with. In fact, I want to give you a passage that I think kind of teaches this. This is one of those passages that just tells you enough to be super, super interesting and leave you with some more questions, <laughs> but maybe gives you just enough to make you, um, can I use the, the word imagine what things might be like? And that's in 1 John chapter 3. 1 John chapter 3 and verse 2. This is one of my favorite passages of Scripture because it makes me so excited about heaven. But I think it actually has this connection to what we're talking about in Ephesians chapter 4, or Ephesians chapter 1, of the earnest or the deposit. What does that deposit of that earnest mean? Well, John talks about this when we get to be with God. 1 John chapter 3 says this, Dear friends, now we are children of God, and what we will be has not yet been made known. But what? But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. Now let me give you a little background about this passage. In verse 2, it, in a lot of translations it says, but we know that when Christ appears, in the original Greek, the word Christ is not there. It's when he appears, that's the original. And if you read the context, it is not talking about Jesus, it's talking about God the Father. Look at the first part of verse 2. Dear friends, we are children of God. And what we will be has not yet been made known, but we know that when he appears, I believe this is talking about God the Father, not about Christ. And John's talking about the end of time. When we get to be with God, he says, we don't know yet what we're going to be. Hasn't been made known. But he says this, we shall be like him. We shall be like God the Father, for we shall see him as he is. I think there is a little bit of connection, possibly a little bit of tie back to Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 14, that this we shall be like him is that we shall be sinless. We shall be completed. We shall no longer have those struggles because we've gotten just this little bit of a down payment of the Holy Spirit now to help us deal with our sin, to help us deal with our temptation, to help us produce the fruit of the Spirit and not produce the works of the flesh. And that is a taste, that power, that ability to overcome is a taste of what it's going to be like when we get to heaven and we are with God and we don't have 
to battle temptation anymore. Think about a time in your life in which you had a battle with temptation and you overcame. You overcame because of the power of the Spirit, because you've been given the Spirit to strengthen you, to help you to overcome, and how awesome that was to overcome, and what a great feeling that was. That is going to be the ecstasy that we get to live in in heaven because we get a complete overwhelming power of the Holy Spirit. Not just a down payment, but the full payment. Brother, you just blew my mind because I have read that passage in Ephesians and it may just be that that limited perspective that I possessed based on the Pentecostal upbringing and then later the the word only perspective on the Holy Spirit but that statement about the Holy Spirit being our earnest being our down payment being our guarantee or guarantor whatever you, however whatever term you want to use it all means the same thing and I've always struggled to understand what does that mean what is the point that Paul's making here and tying that over to 1 John 3 and 2, brother, that that's a game changer for me. I mean, you've blown my mind two episodes in a row now. <laughs> and it's it's like my head is just swimming over here. I mean, holy smokes, that makes so much sense. The holy that Spirit, makes, it makes sense. Holy Spirit, holy it makes smoke, sense. But... Let me tell you something. <laughs> no, that's wild. And I, I want to circle back around to something else you said whenever you mentioned Abraham and how circumcision was that seal and how the Holy Spirit seals us. And you referenced that you know an Israelite could demonstrate and show physical proof that they were indeed a child of God, that they were an Israelite through that seal of circumcision. Well, whenever you consider the fruits of the Spirit, really in a way, whenever the fruits of the Spirit are manifest in the life of a believer, in that way, the Holy Spirit demonstrates or those fruits of the Spirit are a public display of being a child of God. They function in much the same way that circumcision did in that sense. So really, you have that physical manifestation of being a child of God replaced with that spiritual manifestation of being a child of God that occurs through the transformation of the heart and the renewal of the mind that occurs in Christ Jesus through the power of the Holy Spirit. And brother, what you just said, though, about God and about the Holy Spirit being that tiny sliver, that tiny piece that fills us, that allows us to overcome these things and these challenges in the world and how that full realization will happen in the renewed creation at the end of time. Oh, wow. That's my head swimming with it, brother. This is my mind doesn't get blown off and during the podcast, but you blew my mind out of the water, brother. Yeah. And, and that was something else that I was thinking too, Lee, when you're talking about the, the fruit of the spirit and how we know we have the spirit because of the fruit we bear. And even Jesus talks about this, that you will know them by their fruits. And I think that was why circumcision was such a big deal in the first century. And that that's lost on a lot of people culturally today because people are like, well, why, why were the Jews so obsessed with circumcision? And yes, it was because that, that was part of the law, but even deeper than that was part of the law, that was their sign. That was, that was the circumcision for lack of better words, had always proven that they were God's people. And now that was no longer necessary. That was no longer a part of this new covenant. And now that we have the Holy Spirit, Jesus said, you're going to know who my disciples are, not by circumcision. Um, and even, you know, Colossians talks about circumcision of the heart, but that seal 
of the Holy Spirit and the way that we treat each other, the fruit that we bear. And when we have that fruit of the Spirit, it demonstrates that we are acting in accordance with the Spirit. And it's it's ironic, too, because we used to, to have this discussion all the time. And Brandon, I think you and I have even had this discussion in times past before we changed about how you know, the, someone can, can demonstrate the fruit of the spirit, but actually not be walking by the spirit. You know, they're, they're just influenced by the spirit. And I've started to change my whole belief on that because while before there may have been people that I would have not considered a Christian because maybe one or two doctrinal issues or a couple things that we would disagree over, if they were bearing the Holy or if they were bearing the fruit of the spirit, that really indicates that they are walking by the spirit. And so whether I acknowledge that or not, that would prove in a sense, in a demonstrable sense, that this is a person who has the spirit of God living in them and they're being led by the spirit. I agree wholeheartedly. I think that's something that we missed in our law-based religion is that God was working through a lot of people that we weren't willing to accept because they were producing his fruit. Uh, again, you know, trees only produce the kind of fruit that they are. And if people are producing the fruit of the spirit, then they're spirit-filled people whether we're comfortable accepting them or not. I think that's such an important point that whenever you're so entrenched in legalism and your faith is so predicated on that certainty we talked about in the last episode and that Kevin and I have discussed just ad nauseum on this podcast, whenever your faith is predicated on having all the right answers and it's based on doctrinal purity and precision obedience to that particular set of doctrines at that point. Well, it doesn't matter what the fruit of the spirit is. If you're not doing X, Y, Z, if you're not using one loaf and one cup on the Lord's table, well, it doesn't matter how much love, joy, peace, long suffering, goodness, patience, gentleness, meekness. It doesn't matter how many of those things you have manifesting in your life, how many of those fruits of the spirit manifest. It doesn't matter because you're out. But what the Bible teaches is is far different. And Brandon, what you just said, if you are manifesting those fruits of the Spirit in your life, you are a Spirit-filled person, period. Yep, agreed. In fact, it's really a great point to move on to our next, our next point is Galatians 5, which is a fruit of the Spirit, pushes us to the next point. We've talked about the Spirit is a gift, the Spirit is a seal. We need to talk about the Spirit as leader. Uh, and this is something that makes a lot of people uncomfortable. I just saw Kevin's eyes go up. He's he's uncomfortable already. We're going to talk about being led by the Spirit. <laughs> <laughs> but this is something that Scripture is really clear about. And and honestly, this shouldn't be a shock to us. As Do children lead or do children follow? They follow. They follow. We're God's children. What? Why in the world do we think it's our job to take the lead? It's not. It's our job to follow. And Galatians uh, chapter 5 is clear on this. Of course, it's a big, long section of Scripture about, about the fruit of the Spirit, which we're not going to delve into all that because we don't have time for that. But I do want to look at this idea of leading because oftentimes that gets missed in the fruit of the Spirit. The leading of the Spirit is what leads up to the fruit of the Spirit discussion. Verse 16 of Galatians 5, So I say, walk by the Spirit, you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the flesh desires... What is contrary to the spirit and the spirit, what is contrary to the flesh? They're in conflict with each other so that you are not to do whatever you want. Notice verse 18. But if you are led by the spirit, you are not under the law. Now, Paul could have said, 
if you are led by the word of God, you're not under the law. But that's not what he said. He said, if you are led by the Spirit, and he said in verse 16, to walk by the Spirit. What's interesting, this idea of leading, the Greek actually means to like to lead by laying hold of. It's, it's this idea of allowing the Spirit to come in and grab you by the hand and to take you where God wants you to go. Now, for a lot of us, that makes us super uncomfortable because, oh, you're talking about these warm and fuzzy feelings. And no, the Spirit never works contrary to the Word of God. We, we, we as Christians typically know right and wrong and what's moral and immoral, but sometimes what we choose to do is not what we know to be right. And the Spirit's trying to lead us into those things that we know to be right and sometimes maybe lead us into places that are uncomfortable. We need to recognize that as followers of God, it is not our job to lead. We're children. Our job is to follow. And denying or refusing the Spirit's leading is to abandon our status as children. I'm going to say it again. Let that sink in. To deny or refuse the Spirit's leading is to abandon our status as children. We understand that with our own kids. Lee, I know you got four kids. One, one of our kids just dismisses what we say and they run off to go do their own thing. We're like, wait a minute here. You've got your role messed up. You're not parent. You're not mom. You're not dad. You're the kid. You, you follow my direction. Until you get to be the adult, you have to kind of follow the way that I lead you to go. And so we have the same concept here with, with God as our father. The spirit is, is leading us. And as children, we need to follow that leading. In fact, our job is not to lead, but it's clear our job is to walk by the spirit, is to keep in step with the spirit. Galatians chapter 5, verse 25, after the fruit of the spirit discussion, Paul's admonition is keep in step with the spirit. In other words, our job is to pay attention to the spirit's leading and to follow that. Now, I know that phrase makes some people super uncomfortable. The Spirit's leading. Again, sometimes the Spirit leads through Scripture. Sometimes the Spirit leads through our community of believers. You ever had somebody come up to you and, and out of love, correct you, try to point you in another direction different than the one that you're going, and you know that what they're saying is right, but you don't like to hear it? This is the Spirit speaking through another oh, yeah. believer. And, you know, and our, our initial reaction to that is what? Fight back. Push back. Resist, and that's not walking in step with the Spirit. If we're producing the fruit of the Spirit, which one of those things is meekness, then we should be able to take the Spirit's leading when it comes to other people. Uh, but we oftentimes let the flesh get in the way. Yeah, and I was going to say, too, something that I had never noticed, at least not within this context here, is that Paul, when he's writing here, he says that these uh, these things the the i guess you could call them the fruits of the uh, flesh really if we wanted to to you know put it in a simplistic way these things are evident <laughs> it's it, you know paul said these these things aren't like hidden and i think about how difficult we've made christianity because there are some things that are just undeniably wrong and and even people who are not christians would say these things are wrong you shouldn't act that way or you shouldn't treat somebody that way and the same is true of the fruit of the spirit. Things are just undeniably clear, the, clearly right. And and whether you know, I, I remember, for example, when I used to think Tim Tebow was not a true Christian because he didn't believe just like me. You know that guy. I mean, even people who hate Tim Tebow love Tim Tebow because he is just a good guy. There, it's it's evident in his life. This is a man who loves people. He's sincere. He tries to do the right thing. 
He tries to help other people. Uh, I've seen several documentaries, and I mean, he just, you know, even people who I've spoken to who are not Christians at all and who hated Florida and who hate Florida as far as football is concerned, when he was there, they're like, but you can't deny you would just want to be friends with this guy. And, you know, I, I feel like um, when, when you think about this in the way of what Paul is saying and who he's writing to, because something that Lee and I try to bring up a lot is context and, and not just the actual context of the letter, but cultural context and, and realizing that, as low as two to three percent of people were actually literate during this time. And so they didn't even have the New Testament as we have it as far as the the canon. I mean, it was still being written. And so how would someone know if you were a follower of Jesus? The point is it's evident. It's evident because of these traits. And then it goes on to list the fruit of the spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. And, you know, we've tried to even make these like a legalistic checklist. And even Paul's not trying to do that because when he's talking about the, the, the flesh, the works of the flesh, he even says, and things like this, you know, his point's not to say, here's like, you know, make sure you avoid these, you know, these handful of things, or even when it comes to the fruit of the spirit, make sure you just do these things. The point is, here are the characteristics of someone who is living a flesh-filled life versus a spirit-led life. Here's the overview. Yeah. Agreed. Yeah, we make the whole the fruit of the spirit and the work and the leading of the spirit way harder than it has to be. At the end of the day, most believers know what's right and wrong, and we know what we should and shouldn't do, and we need to listen to the leading of the Spirit and not listen to our flesh leading us to commit sin. Uh, one of the fruits of the Spirit, being patience, uh, I think leads us into another gift of the Spirit, and that is Spirit as comforter. Now, this again, this is another one of those that makes some people uncomfortable, especially those who kind of come from the same background as the three of us. Uh, John 14, It's kind of ironic in a way. <laughs> yeah, we yes. don't want that comfort. <laughs> no, no. The, the of comfort not. makes us uncomfortable. <laughs> right, right. Well, John 14, uh, 16 and 17. <clears throat> this is a passage of scripture that I was taught only applied to the apostles. And I will freely admit, Jesus is talking clearly to the apostles here. Uh, but I think it has implications for us as well. He says here in John 14, 16 and 17, and I will ask the Father, and I and he will give you another advocate to help you and to be with you forever. This is the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of truth. The world cannot accept him because it neither sees him nor knows him, but you know him, for he lives with you and he will be with you. Now, this is one of those sections of scripture that we, some people have dismissed because they say, well, this only applies, this only applies to the apostles. Here's one problem with that reasoning. You know what verse the very the, the verse just previous to this is verse 15 all believers believe verse 15 applies to all believers but somehow when you come to verse 16 and 17 some folks think that doesn't apply to us verse 15 is this is the commandment I give you love one another but we come to verses 16 and 17 and somehow that only applies to the apostles I think it I think it has broader application than just the apostles uh, and I want to focus in on this. There's some different translations. Verse 16, the NIV says an advocate. Some say comforter. Um, the actual idea is the idea of a counselor or legal aid, which I think is very interesting. I don't know very many people from my Christian circles, especially the ones I grew up in, that ever thought of the Holy Spirit in any 
way, shape, or form like a legal aid, like legal advice, like a lawyer. But that's what this word actually implies. So I want you to think about when do you employ the help or the advice of a lawyer? When does a lawyer ever bring you bring you comfort? I mean, and we have lots of lawyer and attorney jokes uh, in modern day America, but if we really boil it down to the simplest form, don't lawyers really do bring us comfort when we're in difficult situations in which we need guidance outside of areas that we're experts in? I mean, whether yeah, they argue it's, on your behalf, yeah, they argue on your behalf, of course. And that's the idea. The Holy Spirit is given to us as our advocate, the one to argue on our behalf, to bring us comfort, to help us, to guide us, to give us the advice that we need to, to defend us. And so we see that we're promised that gift. And we have a lot of Christians who deal with all sorts of anxieties. I think a lot of times those anxieties are in place because we're not allowing the Spirit to bring us comfort. We're too busy listening to the flesh, not listening to the Spirit. Think about how many people you know, and probably you guys have struggled with this like I have, who sometimes doubt their own saved status before God. You guys ever struggled with that? I never really have, but I have a really, really dear friend of mine that served as the crux of a conversation that they and I have had on multiple occasions. And through a lot of the work that Kevin has done, they have shared with me that Kevin's book that he wrote, A Different Kind of Poison, that that book was extremely helpful for them in reorienting their their spiritual worldview towards one that accepted God's grace for what it is. But before that moment, they struggled a lot with knowing that they were saved. And I am a firm believer that the Holy Spirit is given to us to help us with that. We'll talk about some passages in Romans 8 here in a minute that I think clearly teach that. I think for a lot of people who struggle with that, a lot of those people are people who struggle with the Holy Spirit, who struggle with accepting that He dwells in them and actively helps them. And I think that's one of the consequences of that is that they have some real doubts about their saved status before God because they're not allowing the Spirit to comfort them. Well, it's it's funny, Lee, you talk about uh, an individual you've been discussing and how my book has helped because that's actually something I still struggle with at times myself. <laughs> I need to go back and maybe read it. But, uh, you know, what, what I think about just that, that whole concept of, salvation, Brandon, as you're talking about, it, it really goes back to certainty. It goes back to wanting more than what we have. And for for me, when I started changing, I was comparing the way I'm feeling now to how I used to feel. And when I thought I had everything figured out, you know, that was, it was a self-reliance is what it was. And I, I think the hardest part for most people is realizing that salvation is not a feeling and that and that's difficult because when you have felt certainty which we all have we have all been so certain at times but then we can look back and know of examples in our own lives where we were so certain we felt like we knew we knew something was a truth and then we demonstrably had it proven that we were wrong that shakes you to the core and at that point, you realize that certainty is not built upon a feeling because if it is, 
then it's as it's as fragile as though as any time we've ever been quote unquote certain, but then also later have been found to be wrong. And so as long as we trust in ourselves, we will always doubt. We will always wonder. Uh, and I think, by the way, even when we trust in God, there's going to be a lot of moments of doubt. We see that throughout Scripture. But the point I'm making here is it's it's it is, for lack of better words, certain <laughs> that you will always be uncertain if you're trusting in your own ability to get to heaven. And what you're talking about here is more of that mystery stuff that we discussed in the last episode, that the more that I let go, the more uncertainty that my study develops, the more confidence I have that I'm saved because I realize it's no longer about me having to get everything right. And that's a hard ship to jump, uh, that, that certainty ship, because it is, it's a, such a good feeling thinking you have everything right. And then having to change to the point of believing that you don't even have to get everything right. It's not about getting everything right. And I don't mean to imply that you shouldn't try to get everything right, but that's ultimately not the goal. The goal is to be transformed and grow closer to, to God and trust in His grace, realizing you can't do it. Well, and whenever you let go of that certainty and you lean on God, then you no longer become the source of your own comfort. Yeah. Because at that point, you're not leaning on your own understanding. At that point, you know, we still try to grow in our understanding of the truth. We want to know more about God and learn how to move better within this world. But whenever we make that an exercise that we engage in alone without the aid of the Spirit, the Spirit can't comfort us. The Spirit can't comfort us, not because the Spirit is unable to comfort us, because He's not powerful enough to comfort us, but because we're not letting Him comfort us. And when we don't allow the spirit to do his work, it makes it much, much harder for us to bear that fruit because it is the fruit of the spirit. It's not the fruit of Brandon. It's not the fruit of Lee. In fact, the fruit of Lee is it's bad fruit. It's not going to go well. It's it's the bad stuff that exists within me that I want to give into. But the Holy Spirit helps me move beyond that. If I will let the Holy Spirit let if I will let the Holy Spirit Help me move beyond that. I'm starting to get tongue-tied here. And Brandon, I want to say one more thing and then and then let you have the floor to uh, discuss this some more. But I think so much of this for a lot of our audience and even for me, at first it sounds counterintuitive because, you know, what we're saying is in order to, to, to be certain, let go of your uncertainty, you know, and in order to... To, to know God, lean into what we don't know and lean into the mystery. And all of those things seem counterintuitive, but when you really put those things into practice, uh, I, I firmly believe that you will see a change. I know that I've seen a change in my own life. I mentioned that in the last episode, or maybe this episode, I'm not sure. But The Sin of Certainty, that book, is really when, when I started to change because I was able to lean in to my uncertainty. I was able to lean in to the mystery of God where prior I was not only fighting it, my church conditioning taught me that I had to fight that, that I shouldn't be leaning in. I should be trying to find an answer for absolutely everything. And the more you try to find answers and in, in, in you come out empty or you come up empty, that's where, where you start to have all these doubts and you're, you're, you're just trying to rely on yourself. And so I think it's interesting the correlation that you're you're bringing about to this discussion with the Holy Spirit and how a lot of people aren't, aren't at peace because they're trying to create that comfort for themselves instead of leaning into the mystery of the Spirit for, for God to provide that. 
Well said. Yeah. Um, I want to take this time to kind of transition from, we talked about spirit as gift, which was the gift, the seal, the down payment, the the leader. And I want to transition into, because we've been talking about this idea of un, uncertainty and a lot of times uncertainty in our salvation because of our own weakness and, and lack of understanding into the spirit sanctifying work. That's a, that's a big fancy word. Sanctification just means the being set aside for something holy, set aside for something specific. When, when we put faith in Jesus, frankly, we're not good for much of anything because um, we are completely broken and completely sinful. But God has chosen us through our faith to move us to a point in which we emulate Jesus, we look like Jesus, we are conformed to his image, and the Spirit takes that job. The Spirit is the one who brings about that sanctifying work. But frankly, we still have some sin problems. Um, and sin is really hard on Christians. Um, you know, we we try to do better and we grow. And as the Spirit works on us, we we do do better. I, I remember hearing a story about a guy one time who put faith in Christ. He was a believer. And he really had a hard time with uh, uh, with with foul language. Um, and he was kind of upset uh, after I don't know six or eight months after he had he had begun to follow Jesus that he was still struggling with cussing, and uh, he had a conversation with his preacher and uh, said, you know, I just feel like I'm I'm not uh, I don't have the Holy Spirit because I'm still struggling with this. And the man's wife was there with him, and uh, preacher looked at his wife and said, uh, Well, is he doing better than he was before? She said, Oh man, he's doing way better. He's 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 so much better than it used to be. So that's the spirit sanctifying work. The the flesh is still there. You're still failing along the way sometimes, but the spirit is working in you. But we sometimes get caught up in the failure, right? Uh, and sometimes, frankly, it's failure in areas that it's not a matter of ignorance. We know it's wrong, and yet we do it anyway. Or we know we ought to do something, and we don't do it. Uh, Romans 7, Paul talks about that. One of the most comforting, for me anyway, one of the most comforting sections of Scripture. Kevin, you and I and, and Lee, we talked uh, a few months ago on a podcast about pornography and how Kevin, you and I struggled with that for years. We were addicted to it, and we knew it was wrong. We did it along the way, did it countless times, knew it was wrong. And that can really steal your confidence as a Christian. And frankly, that's not just an addiction thing. Every Christian at times does things that they know they shouldn't do, or they leave things undone that they should. And that's hard on us. It steals our, it steals some of our confidence. Uh, it, it hurts us because the way sin damages us, it, it can hurt our hope. Uh, it hurts our hope sometimes that we're not going to improve. You ever feel that way, guys? Like, man, I've been struggling with the same thing for years and I'm never going to get better. Uh, maybe oh, it, yeah. it hurts. Oh yeah. Hurts our confidence um, in our saved status. Maybe it damages our communication with God. You're like, man, uh, can't believe I did that. And it, if you ever do that, it's, sometimes it's hard to pray, isn't it? When you're feeling so ashamed of what you've done, you find it hard to pray. Kevin, you ever been there? Yeah, absolutely. And I think when we take into consideration guilt as being uh, something that we all struggle with from time to time as humans, you know, even even Satan is considered the great accuser and really plays on that guilt. And I've met people who 
or, or were in the position you were talking about where they had failed in certain aspects of their life and they didn't improve as quick as they thought they should have, or perhaps even as quick as the congregation they attended, the church where they attended, that the the leaders there were saying, hey, you're not you're not improving like you need to improve, or at least in the time within we think you should be improving. And so the individual just gives up. They think that God's not with them. They think they don't have the Holy Spirit or they think it's just too hard. And so I know for for me, and I'd like to hear your thoughts on this, I've actually seen people who have used the Holy Spirit to actually manipulate through guilt. And I have had conversations with people where the churches they attended would do this. Um, they would say, well, you know, you're, you're feeling guilty about this because that's the Holy Spirit telling you that you need to change or you need to repent or you need to stay at this church or you need to give more money or whatever it may be. And, and in some cases, I think it's intentional, but in more than most, I, th- I think it's probably unintentional, but I still have seen how people have kind of used the Holy Spirit to manipulate individuals by playing off uh, their fear by or by playing on their fear, playing off their you know their their guilt, and so they kind of use that to manipulate individuals, and and kind of using their feelings as the Holy Spirit against them, and so uh, that that's just something too I kind of wanted to bring up because I do see that that happens from time to time, and instead of the Holy Spirit being used as a tool, or at least being understood as a tool to help us change, it's used more as a tool, or the Holy Spirit's used more as a tool to manipulate are to continue to to shame folks in you know into being able to control people if that makes sense. It makes sense. I, I would my response to that would be as we talked about last episode, I think we need to be on the <clears throat> we need to lean more towards giving God glory even if we're not certain that he was the one to do it if it's something good. And we need to be very careful and lean possibly the other direction when it comes to speaking on behalf of God or speaking on behalf of the Holy Spirit. Unless something is very clearly the leading of the Spirit, I think we should be very cautious about saying, well, the Spirit is telling you to do such and such, uh, because uh, we might be interpreting that incorrectly, especially when it relates to someone else's life. Uh, This idea, though, of the Spirit sanctifying us, Paul deals with this idea about how sin hurts us when he talks about in Romans 7, verses 18 through 24, about how he knows to do good and yet the flesh and the sin that's in him he doesn't do it and the things he knows he shouldn't do the the flesh and the sin that's in him ends up doing those things he knows he shouldn't and what's interesting you know what paul's solution to that problem is paul's solution to this problem of sin and doing things he knows he shouldn't do and leaving things undone he knows he should do his solution to that he says god's solution is the holy spirit romans chapter 8 verses 1 and 2 paul spends this big long section in chapter 7 talking about this sin and how it's hard on him and how he does the things he doesn't want to do. And he says, who's going to save me from this the situation? And then he answers his own question in chapter 8, verses 1 and 2. It's the very next couple of verses. He says, therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, because through Christ Jesus, the law of the Spirit who gives life has set you free from the law of sin and death. So let's say we have somebody listen to this podcast who is really struggling with the fact that they're not perfect, that they sometimes do things they shouldn't. They sometimes leave things undone that they know they should do. Now, this is not a a license to just go sin it up all you want. Paul deals with that in in Romans chapter 6. But for the believer who really wants to please God but fails, and that's all of us, 
You know what Paul's word to you is? There is no condemnation for you because you are in Christ Jesus and the Spirit has given you life. You see, one of the Spirit's sanctifying works is to make us realize we're not condemned. I think for a lot of people who struggle with the feelings of security in their salvation, they are not listening to the Spirit. They're trying to walk by a law of sin and death, and they're not listening to the Spirit that's been given to us to tell us we're in a safe condition. Yeah, and that, that's really where I was going with the whole idea of how people have used the the Holy Spirit and the concept to manipulate and to actually play off of people's guilt instead of bring comfort to those who are feeling guilty and let them know that there's no condemnation in Christ to those who are bearing the fruit of the Spirit, to those who love the Lord, regardless of how many times you fail, regardless of of, of how many questions you may have. If, if you're in that relationship with Christ, there is no condemnation because of the Spirit. And that goes back to the guarantee that we discussed as well and that down payment, that that earnest money. And it, this is just such a, a message, or at least it should be such a message of encouragement and peace to people, uh, not one of manipulation where people try to control individuals. And it's it's in freedom that we can really understand the Holy Spirit, not in bondage. And when someone tries to understand the Holy Spirit within the realm of bondage, uh, you know that that's where things get all it gets all sorts of, of of you know messed up, tangled up, tied up. Because you know I've I've spoken to a handful of folks before, and they go, well, you know, I, I just feel like the Holy Spirit is my guilt. And I don't even know if I'm saved because I have this guilt. I said, well, clearly, if you think it's the Holy Spirit, you're saved because you wouldn't have the Holy Spirit. They go, well, I've never thought of it that way. <laughs> <laughs> and I said, yeah. I said, so if, you know, I said, so what, whatever you think it is, you know, I said, if, if, if it's the Holy Spirit in you, I said, then you already have uh, that down payment. The Holy Spirit is in you. And, and so I, I just think that this is such a good message, what you're, what you're teaching here. And I think it definitely lines up with the spirit of, of the gospel and Jesus Christ and what we see in the revealed word of scripture. And it's just, it's very interesting the way that you're phrasing it, because I don't, I would have never believed this is what it meant to be led by the Holy spirit or to understand the spirit because of the way that I had always been taught to believe in the spirit. And also a lot of misrepresentations of the Holy spirit and abuses of the Holy spirit as well. Well, and it's so incredibly hopeful. And and I think that's one of the most beautiful aspects of this perspective on the Holy Spirit and who he is and what his work is and what he does for us in the life of a Christian is it really does give us hope. Because as Paul says, as as Peter says, as the scriptures teach, if it's up to us, there's no way we're going to make it. We have to rest and rely on Jesus. And even then it's hard enough as it is. I mean, sin is incredibly hard to deal with. And just like you said, when Paul goes into all that in Romans seven, where he talks about those things that he knows he ought not to do, he does them anyway, because his flesh wins that particular battle. It's so wonderful to know that the Holy Spirit's there to help us win the war. And we're not going to be able to win it without him. And without Jesus, without the Holy Spirit working in us, then 
I mean, that, oh, I'm, I'm tripping over my words here. Just the fact that there is no condemnation because of the Holy Spirit and because of what the Spirit does for us, that it's so hopeful. It's so mind blowing. And it's, it's just, it really is incredible. Kevin, in uh, relation to what you were talking about, about the Spirit not, uh, not convicting people that they're lost, Paul delves into that more. For people who, who haven't really studied the Holy Spirit, I would recommend you read Romans 8. Romans, about the, first, the last half of chapter 7 and all of chapter 8. There's, it's a great, great writing on the Holy Spirit. And this one little section here I want to talk about, about the Spirit's sanctifying work on us where it bears witness to us. The Spirit bears witness to us, not that we're lost. Romans 8, verses 14, 15, and 16, Paul says this, For those who are led by the Spirit of God are children of God. Okay, there's the head knowledge, okay? Scripture says, if you're led by the Spirit, you are God's children. But for some of us, that's not enough. So then Paul knows that, so he says in verses 15 and 16, The Spirit you received does not make you slaves, so that you live in fear again. Rather, the spirit you received brought about your adoption to sonship and by which we cry, Abba, Father. The spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are God's children. Wow. Isn't that awesome? The sp- we are given the spirit. That's we're led by the spirit. It's, we're led by the spirit and we're children of God. And the spirit is not sent to us to make us feel like slaves. So for anybody who's listening, who feels like a slave to God, who feels like they've got to do something to earn their salvation, whoever is making you feel that way is not the Spirit. It reminds me of what Paul said to Timothy when he said, we've not been given the spirit of fear, we've been given the the spirit of, of power and love and a sound mind. It's the Spirit that God sends to us, His Spirit that He gives us, doesn't make us feel like slaves so that you live in fear, but rather the Spirit that we have received it's the spirit of adoption. It's like, it's like that uh, adoption certificate that God gives us to say, you're my son. In fact, he sends it into us. He sends it into our heart so that we don't just intellectually know that God is our father, but so that we feel like God is our father. And there we can cry forth, Abba, Father, like a Jewish child would cry to his dad. In, verse, in fact, verse 16 says, the spirit himself testifies with our spirit. Sometimes our inner being wants to argue with us and tell us, no, you're not really God's child. Satan gets in there and he tries to tell us, you know what? God doesn't really love you. God's really not going to save you. You're really a wreck. You're a sinful piece of junk. God doesn't want you. And, but we have been given the Holy Spirit to tell our spirit, to tell our heart, our troubled hearts, you really are God's son. You really are God's child. And that is so cool. It is so cool. In fact, Paul says it again. It's like Romans 8 wasn't enough. He says it again in Galatians. In Galatians chapter 4, verses 5 and 6, he he says basically the same thing with a little different spin. He says, To redeem those under the law that we might receive adoption to sonship. Because you are his sons, okay? Because God has adopted you. There's that intellectual knowledge again. You, You are his son. God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts. Okay? So we are God's children, but sometimes we need something else and God knows that, so he sends his spirit into our hearts 
the Spirit who calls out, Abba, Father. Again, this goes back to last episode when we talked and y'all asked me kind of what led me to a different understanding of the Spirit. And it was when I changed my perspective of my, my walk with Jesus into it being a relationship and not just law. You can't have relationship with God without the Spirit because there is so much of your flesh, there is so much of your sin, and there is so much the voice of Satan telling you God doesn't really want you and God doesn't really love you and you are so messed up. But when you have the Spirit to override all those other influences to remind you you are God's son, you are God's child, you are God's daughter, you can walk in a relationship with him in which you're not constantly shaken. Because the Spirit is talking to you. He's telling your heart, don't listen to Satan. Don't listen to those lies. You are God's child. I think we need an invitation song after that. (laughs) (laughs) Come down while we stand and sing. Well, I I like, no, no, it's, it's fantastic, man. And I like the way that you paralleled what Paul said to Timothy, that God has not given us a spirit of fear. And then we see, you know, that that's that's an explicit statement of what God uh, has not given us, the spirit God has not given us. But then you come to, as you pointed out here, a good parallel passage is Romans eight, where it even says, verse 15, for you did uh, for you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you've received the spirit of adoption as sons, which is, you know, it's it's. You, you get the whole 360 with these two passages because you see what this what God did not give, and then you see what God did give. And Lee and I did a podcast episode uh, a few weeks ago about faith or fear, and are we to operate off out of fear? And so many Christians were taught to operate out of fear. And when you operate out of fear, you can't really have a true relationship. Um, you know, when you look at First John four seventeen and eighteen, the Bible even says that a perfect love casts out fear because within fear there there is there there's this uh, judgment that is looming, and it's it's almost this coercion of a relationship. And anyone who stays in a relationship with someone out of fear of what may happen if they leave is considered abuse. And so, a lot of people are in, unfortunately a perceived abusive relationship with God because they believe that's the way God and his spirit uh, react or act upon us. And so I love how you brought that in here in Romans chapter eight. And while you were talking, it it made me wonder, and I want to ask this to you. There seems to be that there, there are, for lack of better words, some guardrails that the scripture even gives us specifically as to, to know when for sure the spirit's not operating and some indicators as to when the Spirit uh, could be and probably is operating. And so I, I want to ask you about the Holy Spirit's work. Is this something that is forced, or is it more through co- cooperation, understanding what those guardrails look like revealed in Scripture? It most definitely is through cooperation. Um, and that goes back to the nature of God. Um, you know, God could have made Adam and Eve where you know, they had no choice. You know, there was, there's only one tree in the garden. It's a safe tree to eat from. You don't got to worry about the other one. Um, but God is not about robotics. God's about relationship. And so God chose to give them freedom of choice so that he could have relationship with them. You can't have relationship if there's no freedom. And the Holy Spirit's the same way. God wants to have relationship with us. 
He wants the Spirit to work on us through our cooperation. And so, yeah, there certainly are, I hadn't thought of the, the words uh, guardrails, but there certainly are things that Scripture clearly teaches that the Spirit does these things. When you see those things, when, you, when you've, when you in fact, I hate to say this, but when you feel those things, when the Spirit's testifying to your heart and it's saying this, that's from the Spirit. When you're hearing something in your heart that's not that, it's not coming from the Spirit. And that's probably a whole other podcast in and of itself to talk about what some of those guardrails are. Uh, but we most certainly have to cooperate. If, if we're not cooperating with the Spirit, uh, God's not going to force us. In fact, I would say it this way. Since the Spirit works through cooperation, the Spirit is only going to be as powerful in our life as we're willing to let Him be. Uh, if we're not listening and following His leading, uh, if we are denying Him, if we are listening to the flesh instead of listening to the Spirit, He's not going to force us. Uh, if we're choosing to listen to other voices, He's not going to force us. Uh, the Spirit is only going to be as powerful in our life as we allow Him to be through cooperation. Now, he's going to try. No, God always tries to reach His people, but He is not at all going to force us. Uh, I wanted to circle back to one thing real quickly from Galatians chapter uh, Galatians chapter 4, 5, and 6, about the way the Spirit testifies to our heart. If you notice in Galatians 4, 5, and 6, it says, We've been given the Spirit of Christ, the Spirit of Jesus, so that we may cry out, Abba, Father. I believe Paul is playing on not only our relationship with God, but I believe he's playing on Jesus' relationship with the Father. That the exact way that Jesus feels about the Father is the same way that God wants us to feel, and that's one of the reasons the Spirit has been sent to us. You have no indication from Scripture that there is any kind of fear from Jesus towards God, that there's any kind of doubt about that relationship. And I think that's what Paul's trying to convey from Galatians chapter 4, that we've received the Spirit of Jesus so that we may cry out to the Father the same way that Jesus would. We would feel the same way towards Him. We would react the same way towards Him. I don't know about you guys. I don't feel like I'm there yet, but... Uh, that's, a, that's an amazing goal, and that's an amazing thing to realize. That's how God wants me to feel, and He has sent His Spirit into my heart to hopefully help me, make, help me feel that way. And uh, I think that's something that's important for Christians. We sometimes get a little too caught up in what we know and uh, not listen to some of the things that we feel that aren't right and that we might need to address one way or another. I think there's one other thing from Romans 8. I'd like to hit before we move on from Romans 8, because I think uh, I could stay there all night, and I don't want to do that, because I know uh, you guys have other things <laughs> to do. And that is that uh, Romans 8 tells us the Spirit intercedes for us. Romans 8, uh, verses 26 and 27. We'll look at that just real quick. Paul writes, and he says, In the same way the Spirit helps us in our weaknesses. Hmm, that's nice to know. Spirit helps us in our weakness. We do not know what we ought to pray for, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us through wordless groanings, and he who searches our hearts knows the mind of the Spirit, because the Spirit intercedes for God's people in accordance with the will of God. This is one of those sections of Scripture that has caused so much debate. Um, frankly, I don't think it's that hard when you just take Paul for what he said. I think it's hard because we have a hard time accepting that it could be exactly what it says. I think Paul is clearly saying there are times that Christians do not know what to pray for, how to pray. Sometimes that's due to outside circumstances because of their sin. Sometimes it's due to a lack of wisdom and knowledge. 
Sometimes it's the fact that we know there's a bad situation and we don't even know what to ask for. Uh, I'll, I'll tell you a little story about myself. Back in 2018, my dad was diagnosed with pancreatic cancer. Uh, and at the time, uh, my dad and I weren't speaking. And that, when I found out about his diagnosis, that crushed me. And I remember on the way home that afternoon after finding out, I was praying in my truck and I'd had no idea what to ask for. No clue. Pancreatic cancer has very little chance of healing. Um, on top of that, more than the healing, I wanted some form of reconciliation, which never came to pass. And I knew at the time most likely wasn't possible. Uh, I wanted some form of comfort, but wasn't sure how in the world am I going to be comforted when I'm pretty confident he's going to die. I'm pretty confident there's not going to be any form of reconciliation. And I found myself in that moment desperately needing and wanting to pray and not having a clue what to say. All I could manage at the time was, Lord, I'm hurting. Please help me. And at the time, I didn't think about it. Afterwards, it was a great comfort to realize it's by the fact that I didn't know what to ask for. The Spirit was talking to God on my behalf. And I think everybody can identify with that. All believers can identify with that in some different circumstance. Maybe it's because of your own sin, you're having a hard time praying. And in the context of Romans 8, that would certainly fit. Maybe uh, it has something to do with the situation that you didn't know what to ask for. Maybe it's in a situation you didn't feel like how to fix. And so you don't know what to ask God to do. Maybe it's one of those situations where you have an awful lot of emotion and you have no words. Whatever it might be, I think it's clear that Paul is saying God is so much beyond us that he is a mystery in many ways, and that's okay. Don't let that scare you. Don't let that push you away from God. He has put his spirit in you to communicate with him even when you can't find words to communicate with a, a being that's that powerful and that mysterious. Well, in, in that that's a beautiful explanation for that passage because it is a difficult passage and it's especially difficult whenever you operate under the paradigm of the Holy spirit only works through the word only because you have a lot of language there. That's really tough to deal with from that paradigm. But whenever you take Paul for what he says, even then it can be tough to deal with because it's hard for us to fathom that idea it, as verbose as Kevin and I both like to be, it's hard for us to fathom a time when we're rendered speechless yet. We were rendered speechless in the last episode, but there are times in our lives where we have so much pain. We have so much suffering, so much doubt, whatever the case may be. That's another source of incredible comfort to know that the Holy spirit is there interceding on our behalf, praying on our behalf, communicating with God on our behalf which kind of leads us to circle back around to this last idea that we'll discuss before we wrap this up. The work of the Holy Spirit, as you kind of started to get into before we came back around to that, is it worked? Is it a work that occurs through cooperation with us, ultimately with us and God? Or is it something that's forced? Because if you have the power of God sending his spirit, a sliver of himself, we may call it that, or you know, the completeness of, of the Holy Spirit indwelling within all of us, for a being that powerful who is involved in all of the same things the Father and the Son are, who's involved in the creation of all things, who who serves in such a powerful capacity for ourselves, how is it even possible that we as humans can limit the Spirit? Like, how does that work? And I know that's what we're about to get into, but that seems to be a big question that 
that comes to mind, at least in my mind, if the spirit is this big and the spirit does all of this, how can we as humans even possibly limit his work and his power? A great question, man. We need to talk about that. Uh, before we do though, I want to, I want to share one more thing before we jump off on that. I'm sorry to go backwards on you, but, um, I think this is important to Get kind, it, of wrap up, kind of wrap up Romans eight. Um, this whole idea of the spirit interceding for us, I think it would help a lot of folks if they would just read the next two verses about the spirit interceding in our prayer life, because there's one of those verses in Romans chapter eight, verse 28, that everybody loves to quote out of context. And I think if people understood it in context with the spirit, it would help them so much in not only accepting the spirits helping them, but to fully embrace that and to be led by him. And this is, this is verse 28 of Romans, Romans 8. We know that all things, that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. This is in the context of the spirit interceding for us in prayer. So we oftentimes hear this passage quoted at times when it's not helpful. When somebody's just been terrible car wreck and, and some well-meaning believer comes up and says, hey, God's going to work everything out for good for those that love him. Or when someone just loses yeah. their child and, God, and, and this person comes up and says, well, God's going to work this out. That's not what it's talking about. What, what this is talking about is that God is going to work out through you the Spirit working in you, in your prayer life, and in your intercession, all those times you don't know what to ask for, He is going to have, the Spirit is going to speak on your behalf to ask for those things that are exactly in will, in line with God's will, and is going to ask for those things that work out perfect according to God's purpose that are good for us. That's what Romans 8 verse 28 means, that God's going to work That's out everything huge. good. Because the Spirit's working through us. That is absolutely huge. And that you blew my mind again, because that's a passage, like you said, you hear so often, God works those things out, you know, those bad things for the good or whatever else, whenever it's divorced from its context, it is one of those passages that doesn't really, eh, okay. It just seems like, eh, but whenever you consider it within the context of the spirit, brother, that makes so much more sense. That's so much more clear. So with that in mind, how can we, how can little Lee Grant, little dude in Southern Oklahoma, who's only had about 37 years of experience in life, how can he, you know, resist the spirit? How can I shut out the spirit? How is that even possible? Well, that's a great question. Yeah, man. And, 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 I, and go well, ahead, KP. Can I, can I add to that, Brandon, too? Sure. So one of, one of the verses is, is cause I'm, I'm curious about that. That's a question that, I didn't have until Lee brought it up, but I, I immediately thought about Acts seven fifty one, where uh, Stephen, right before he gets stoned, he says that you know he's teaching some of these elitist Jewish leaders who have rejected the message of Jesus, and uh, he says, you know, you men who are stiff necked and uncircumcised in heart and ears are are always resisting the Holy Spirit. You're doing just what your fathers did, and so. You know, you have a passage like that that seemingly is talking to non-Christians at that point, saying that they're resisting the Holy Spirit. And then, of course, you have passages like Ephesians 4.30 that talk about not grieving the Holy Spirit and passages like uh, 1 Thessalonians 5, I believe it's verse 19, that says, do not quench the Spirit. And so with, with those types of passages, what would your... 
what, what would your response be to those and what Lee said about quenching the spirit? I think each one of those, I think each one of those needs to be looked at in context. We'll look at a few of them. Um, Ephesians, just for just kind of a quick run over, you got Ephesians four, it says, don't grieve the spirit. Uh, you have uh, Ephesians five tells us to be filled with the spirit. First Thessalonians five says, don't quench the spirit. Each one of them kind of has their own context. Uh, we talk first off about Ephesians four uh, and grieving the spirit. <clears throat> and that's all in the context of how you treat other people. Uh, in fact, uh, just read a section of that here real quick. If I can pull it up here on my handy dandy little computer. You know, the since we are the Spirit's house, since he, he dwells in us, it makes sense that he doesn't want us to destroy or hurt or damage his house. I, uh, I sometimes use the illustration. It's like uh, somebody walking into your house with a, with a two-pound sledgehammer and starting punching holes in the wall. You're going to have problems with that, right? Uh, that's your abode. Believers are the Spirit's abode. That's where he dwells. It's where he's chosen to make his home. He does not appreciate us treating his abode with disrespect. Notice Ephesians 4 verse 29. Do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only what is helpful for, for building others up according to their needs, that it may benefit those who listen. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God with whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Get rid of all bitterness, rage, anger, brawling, slander, along with every form of malice. So Paul throws in this discussion with the Ephesians right in the middle of, you know, don't, don't hurt other people with your words. Say things that build other people up. Sandwich them between that and get rid of all bitterness, rage, anger, brawling, slander, and malice. Right in between those two thoughts, he throws in this, do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God. And again, he's emphasizing you are hurting God when you hurt God's people. Now, this is not a new concept. It's, it's funny how... This is kind of a revelation to some of us, but it's not a revelation in the sense that we knew that when we hurt God's people, it hurts God. Remember when uh, when God said to uh, uh, to Saul on the road to Damascus, uh, why are you persecuting me? Well, Saul was persecuting Jesus because he was persecuting Jesus' people. It's the same concept. Don't grieve the Spirit by hurting the Spirit's people. What's interesting is the word grieve here, it's the, it's the same Greek word that's used in when Jesus is grieving in the Garden of Gethsemane, when he's sweating drops as if they're blood. Uh, same word, the same, same grief that we give the Spirit when we hurt other people, when we wound the Spirit's house. It's uh, God loves his people, and when we hurt the people that God loves, it hurts him. And I find it interesting that uh, we get caught up in thinking there's going to be something magical about the way we grieve the Spirit, it's by, it's by not acting like Jesus, by not loving His people. Uh, quenching the Spirit, 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. Uh, not as much context. It can be lots of different things. We can pop over there and read it real quick, see if, if I can find it. Y'all go ahead while I look this up. I think it's somewhere around First Thessalonians five nineteen. I think that's where that passage is. But you know, it's it's so interesting to consider, you know, grieving the spirit in terms of grieving other people or causing grief to others and causing harm to others. And it makes perfect sense, especially whenever you look at the simplification that exists. And this is something that I think Kevin and I were talking about not long ago. It's so simple how 
it's so simple what Jesus came to establish in his summary of, of all of the law and the prophets. They hang on, love God and love your neighbor. And you express your love for God by showing your love for your neighbor. And if your neighbor, especially your brother in Christ, if your brother in Christ, they're definitely your neighbor and you are not demonstrating love towards them, well, then you are grieving the spirit that lives within them. That makes perfect sense within that context. Mm-hmm. One of the other ways that we uh, we quench the spirit is we avoid things that challenge us. Uh, this is another one of those really big misunderstandings about the spirit that somehow if it makes us feel good, it must be what the spirit's wanting us to do. Frankly, when you read the book of Acts, or, or all of Scripture for that matter, but especially the book of Acts, you quickly figure out that the Spirit pushes people to do things they're uncomfortable with. And sometimes he pushes people into situations that are painful. Uh, you, can, you can think of things like Matthew chapter 4, where it says the Spirit led Jesus into the wilderness to be tempted. Well, you talk about something that, that really messes with us. You're telling me the Spirit led Jesus into a compromising situation? Well, it was part of God's will. It might have been part of that sanctification process. Uh, you have passages like Acts chapter 10, where Peter has the vision of the animals coming down the sheet in the sheet, and then you have the Spirit telling Peter to go downstairs to the men and go with them. Now, Peter at this point in time, not only is, is a Jew who is a good upstanding guy who doesn't eat with Gentiles, he specifically says he believed the law required him not to go into a house of a Gentile, not to eat with Gentiles. And the Spirit led him into a situation that conflicted with his personal conviction. Now think about that for a minute. The Spirit led Peter into a situation that conflicted with his personal conviction. Not only that, that situation with Peter where he goes to Cornelius and his household, he goes into their house, he eats with them, he teaches them the gospel. The very next chapter in Acts chapter 11, guess what else that situation by following the leading of the Spirit caused Peter. It caused conflict with the brethren. Because they came to him and said, we heard you went into the house of a Gentile. Surely that can't be the case. And this caused an argument. Are you telling me that the Spirit led someone into conflict with the brethren? Yes, because sometimes the brethren need to grow outside their comfort zone. Again, God is more interested. Yeah. God is more interested in changing us than he is in letting us be comfortable. And uh, sometimes we quench the spirit because we avoid personal pain and difficulty and we avoid challenges. Another example of that would be when the spirit um, selected Paul and Barnabas in Acts chapter 13 to go on missionary journey. In the same missionary journey, the guys were persecuted and run out of the city of Antioch of Pisidia. They were attempted to be stoned at Iconium. And Paul was stoned at Lystra. Now, I want you to think about somebody today who goes on mission work and they're persecuted and run out of city from city to city, just constantly run off. Can you imagine them coming home and saying, well, we must have misunderstood. The Spirit didn't want us to go there because no doors were open to us. But Paul, their scripture says that Paul was and Barnabas were specifically chosen for that mission in spite of the persecution that they endured. And yeah, Brandon, something that I I was just had never put together when you're talking about Ephesians 4 and how in that context specifically the grieving of the spirit is when we when we don't love others the way that we need to, when we meet, when we oppress when we oppress people or mistreat people. 
uh, when we do those things, we're not just hurting people, we're also grieving the spirit. And you just talked about Acts 10 with Peter and Cornelius. And when, you know, that, that, that middle wall that had separated uh, Jew and Gentile could now is, is now no longer. And, and Jew and Gentile are now one in Christ. And I just think of that parallel with Ephesians 4, because probably one of the most uncomfortable things that we can do is love people who are different than us. And, and I say that not just because of Acts 10 and Ephesians 4, but through my own personal experience. When I was teaching legalism and teaching, you know, here's what you have to do to go to heaven and here's a checklist. It was more of that checklist mentality and those types of things. Uh, that in and of itself wasn't wasn't too challenging, especially when we think that we've mastered the list. <laughs> but when it comes to actually loving people who are different than we are, especially those whom we disagree, that that is that is hard, and that is very uncomfortable to do. Um, you know, we had a, a friend of mine, Dallas, who's gay. We had him on our show. Uh, over, I don't know, probably a month or month or two ago. And, you know, we, we had just a really good discussion with him about just uh, the, the fact that we need to create safe spaces, regardless of where your belief is, to love people, to love everyone that God has created. And I don't know, it's so, it's so much easier to hate people and to, uh, to malign individuals, to be antagonistic toward people we disagree with, than it is to love them. And it can be, you know, I, can, I can only imagine being Peter in Acts 10, as you pointed out, his, this faithful Jew, great follower of not only the, the, the Torah and the Jewish system, but sincere, had walked with Jesus. And now he's, he's having to, to be kind of the bearer of, hey, you know, it's going to be Jew and Gentile now. Everybody's good. You know, I mean, he'd been taught all of his life the opposite, and and now that which had always been considered unclean is considered clean, and that's uncomfortable, man. I mean that that is that is taking up your cross and following Jesus in, in a very practical sense. And so I, I love the the way that you tied in Ephesians four with, uh, or, or not necessarily even tied it in, but that's how you brought that out in Ephesians 4 and how I think it definitely ties in with uh, with Acts 10 and 11. But I would like to get, because I know we're kind of going over time here, but very quickly, I, I would like to get your commentary um, on Acts 7.51. And, and, and once again, this is where Stephen says that to, the, to those elitists who were rejecting what he was saying, that they were resisting the Holy Spirit just as the fathers their fathers had done. And so my, my question is, is this, is, is this talking about the Holy Spirit trying to work on their hearts outside of them actually having the gift of the Holy Spirit, in your opinion? My opinion is that the Spirit is, is only given to believers. And since they weren't believers, I don't believe they, the Spirit was dwelling them or working on them from the inside. But that the Spirit was working on them from the outside through Stephen um, and that they rejected that. And so since they rejected the Spirit's word through Stephen, they were rejecting the Spirit. It might be in a similar sense, even for believers who have the Spirit, if the Spirit speaks to them through someone else and they reject that, they're rejecting the Spirit. In that sense, they're rejecting the Spirit and His work from outside through someone else. I think it would be the same case for them. 
Yeah, so in the, in there in that context then it would it would be fair to say that 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 was speaking more to the message of of Jesus Christ and the cross and that there are times at least in certain contexts where the word spirit of the holy spirit can be spoken of but it doesn't necessarily mean that someone has received the the gift the indwelling of the spirit it's speaking more to the message of the spirit it's certainly, but even in that case, it's not like uh, Stephen was preaching from from Matthew or John. Bible. Stephen was speaking <laughs> through inspiration of the Spirit. So, in a in a very literal yeah. sense, uh, it was the Spirit speaking through Stephen. But but yes, oft, sometimes uh, Scripture does talk about the Spirit, and it is the message that's being spoken. Yeah, we see that I think with Paul too. I mean, we, you see certain apostles when they're claiming that apostolic authority. That in the, in that case, in a, in a very real way, it's it's even Paul says when he wrote to the uh, the Thessalonians that you know it wasn't his word that it was it was God's word. So in the same way, you could say when Stephen was speaking, it wasn't Stephen's word. Uh, in that context, it would be the Holy Spirit speaking, and that's what they were resisting. Mm-hmm. So with all of this in mind, as we have discussed the Holy Spirit, and as we get ready to wrap all this up how do we walk in step with the spirit? Because we've talked about the Holy spirit. We've talked about who the Holy spirit is. We've talked about what the Holy spirit does and how the Holy spirit interacts with the believer and how the Holy spirit empowers the believer. We've talked about how we can shut out the spirit very briefly, but how do we walk in step with the spirit? Is this something that we consciously lean into? How does that work from your perspective, Brandon? I think it is. Um, I think it's also a lifestyle, but um, I've got Quickly, just three things. I'm sure there are others throughout Scripture. These are three that, that I personally use. One of them is Kevin's new favorite verse in Luke 11, 13, uh, that we need to invite <laughs> the Spirit in. But we need you better to believe pray. I'm going to pray that. I'm going to pray that tonight. Good, good. It's uh, Honestly, man, I pray it all the time. Um, I pray it in times of, uh, in times of temptation. Um, I pray it in times where I'm not feeling as close to God, where I've feel like he's distant and I know that's me, not him, but I pray for the spirit to work in me to, so I do feel that way so that I do feel like God is close. Um, even the apostles prayed for the spirit before they laid hands on people and passed on miraculous gifts. Uh, for guys who had miraculous gifts and were used to passing on, they even prayed first. Um, and so I think we need to actively be asking God. I've, I've had people argue with me about that. Um, I had a guy just the other day tell me that you know, when you receive the Holy Spirit, you get all the Holy Spirit. There's not any extra measures. Well, you know, I respectfully disagree. Um, I think Scripture is clear that there were people who were full of the Holy Spirit. And uh, I pray for an extra measure on a regular basis. Uh, number two, I would say you need to invest in the Holy Spirit. Uh, Galatians 6, verses 6 through 10, I think would be a, a good example. And that passage is actually talking about financially helping those who are doing mission work, and is talking about investing in that. We, we can actively invest in the Holy Spirit's work. Maybe that's through study. Uh, maybe it's through uh, confession. Maybe it's uh, through just doing things that we know are fruits of the Spirit. The more we lean into those things that Paul said were evident as works of, of the, or fruits of the Spirit, I believe we're investing in that. We can invest through prayer and, and many other ways. I think we should invest in the work of the Spirit in our lives. Um, and then thirdly, this may surprise you all a little bit, um, I think that the last thing that I would recommend is that 
you need to lean into a community of believers. Uh, I don't necessarily mean you got to go to a mega church or anything like that. I know you guys have had plenty of discussion and are kind of on the same page with me about organized religion and how frustrating that can be. Uh, but Ephesians uh, chapter 5 actually uh, gives us some insight into how we can be filled with the Spirit. And frankly, part of that is having a community of believers. Paul talks about it when he writes to the Ephesians. If my computer will come up, here we go. He says, Do not get drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery. Instead, be filled with the Spirit. Speak to one another with psalms, hymns, and songs from the Spirit. Sing and make music in your heart to the Lord. Always give thanks to God the Father for everything in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. So Paul sees here this idea of being filled with the Spirit. It's done through this one another stuff. He specifically talks about the one another worship, uh, singing together. He also throws in this line about giving thanks to God. So I think a lot of uh, walking in step with the Spirit is not trying to do your walk with God by yourself. Again, that might be a small community of people. It might be just three or four other Christians that are a tight-knit friendship around you. But the Spirit works in communities, not just in individuals. Yeah, absolutely. And I I know, like, I can probably speak for Lee if he wants to disagree. He can't, but I doubt he will. Um, Because he and I have discussed this on the podcast at length. and, And that's one thing we've emphasized is that community is essential within your within your Christian walk. And that's how you're able to learn from one another, hold one another accountable. Oftentimes we see God working through other Christians to help bring about certain desired results and to help also keep people from going, uh, for the lack of better words, too far off into the deep end uh, or, or, you know, whether it's emotionally or you know, ends up, you know, somebody just has a crazy belief. If they're by themselves, they may be able to believe it. But if they're in a community of believers, they have those checks and balances that are in place. And uh, that's that's just such an essential part of, of you know, your, your Christian walk. And as you pointed out, with the Spirit, because, you know, what, what of course, we take more issue with is just the 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 ways in which it's been abused where people do go to quote unquote church all their life and they actually don't they don't have that community they're 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 isolated among hundreds of people and uh they they're they're surrounded by all these people but they don't actually have a community and so that's why we always encourage people if you can find that in a standard uh, america what i call americanized institutionalized church by all means find that community and get in there if you find it with a home church or a small group church or a, a, a communal style church uh you know whatever it takes uh and when i say communal i don't mean like a commune in the middle of nowhere but uh like a mutual edification church where there's not the the employed staff and those types of things but yeah whatever it takes it doesn't really matter where uh, you just need to find it. That that community is so essential. And I do want to say one thing, Brandon, with you, just to give you um, a little encouragement too, because I have seen such a change in you over the past couple of years. Uh, really, just since you started studying the Holy Spirit, because I remember when you first started getting into it. Um, for those who don't know, Brandon owns his own business as well. And so actually all three of us own our own business. That's pretty cool. And uh, I, I remember uh, none of us are preachers and we all uh, we, we all own our own businesses and we come on here and teach. So it's fun. But, um, you know, it's I, I remember, Brandon, you and I were talking probably a year, maybe two years ago. You were talking about how you've been praying and, you know, the Holy Spirit was working on your heart. And, 
And uh, I'm like, man, what is happening with Brandon? You know, what is going on? And you, you had made mention about how you, you dedicated your business to God. You know, you've, you've sanctified it to God. And I was just like, I just, I don't agree with that, Brandon. I think that's silly. And I don't know. Sounding sound mighty denominational. Yeah. I, I, don't, I don't know if you remember that conversation or not, but um, I'm I like, well, you I don't, looking I don't at know, me Brandon. like I was nuts. Yeah, I'm like, man, I think you're kind of overdoing it a little bit. And um, but but now, I mean, you've rub, rubbed off on me in a good way, and uh, I hope to be where you're at um, soon. And you know, just just by everything that we touch, the spirit through us should also touch. You know, these there shouldn't be all these compartmentalizations of well, in this area. I've dedicated this part of my life, but not this part of my life or this part, you know, God's working, but not in this part. I mean, that's, it's the totality of our lives where we should see God working. And I've, I've just seen such a, a major change within you, not just overcoming legalism over the past five years, since we've both changed pretty much together, but it, just in the past couple of years of really leaning into uh, the spirits leading. And, uh, and, and a lot of this is still very, foreign to me in the way that I talk normally. And I hope to try to incorporate it more. I know my prayer life's gotten a lot better. And uh, I think as my prayer life's got gotten better, so hope, you know, so is, is some of kind of being able to, to entertain some of this a little bit more and try to incorporate it more into my life, even though I may not really, because I'm such a tangible person, man. And I, and I think there's, there's, there's so many people out there like that. And I think you are too. And that's why I've been so impressed with how you've been able just to kind of let that go and uh, and really embrace this cuz i think people who are more emotional they don't ha- and, and i'm not saying more emotional in a in a negative sense but you know what i mean just people sometimes who are not as as they're not going to study they're not as left brained yes they're they're not going to they're not going to take you know one subject and study it for 10 years before they're you know they they want to talk about it. they're they're just going to read an article and say oh this sounds good i'm good to go and uh, I think for them, this it, it's probably a little bit easier to embrace this. But for those of us who are a little more skeptic and hesitant, or perhaps like in Lee's situation, who has had a very bad experience with 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 learning about the Holy Spirit in a way that's really not properly defined, or at least as we understand being properly defined. And so, I, I hope people like myself and others, you know, listening, will take advantage of everything Brandon said because I think you've done a fantastic job. And, and I can personally attest to your character and how this has changed even you really leaning into this. I was handing it off to you, Brandon, but I just saw you point at me. So I, I just want to echo what Kevin said, brother. You have really broken this down in a way that's been easy to follow. It's easy to understand. And you've taken a concept that is just incredibly difficult and nuanced and there's, there's just so much out there on the Holy spirit and you've really presented the scriptural basis for what you believe in a way that's been easy to follow. And we've gone way over the time that we wanted to, but I think it's definitely been worth our time. It's been worthwhile. And brother, thank you so much for your willingness to come on and join us again for this discussion. We really appreciate it. Well, thank you, guys. I appreciate uh, your kind words, Kevin. I praise God that he's uh, brought some changes into my life, and hopefully he'll continue to do that and make me look more and more like Jesus. I hope that uh, it's been beneficial to anybody else who's who's listening, and maybe they can lean a little bit more into the Spirit and let him uh, lead them through life a little bit more than they have been.
Absolutely. There's no doubt in my mind that this is going to be an encouraging episode to many, many of our listeners. And on that note, we want to extend our thanks to all of you once again. We are so thankful for all of you and for your willingness to share our podcast with others. Share it far and wide. Share it on Facebook. Send links to your friends. Our audience is growing pretty quickly right now, and it's because you guys appreciate what we're doing and you're willing to share it with others. So thank you all very much for your patronage. Thank you for listening. Thank you for tuning in every week to hear us ramble about stuff related to Christianity and our Christian faith. Give us that five-star review. If you have any questions, reach out to us, holler at us, give us your suggestions, your comments, your what you like, what you don't like. We love hearing from y'all. Thank you all very much. Brandon, thanks once again, and we bid you all a good night.